Hello and welcome back to the Reincarnated Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Stishon, and this week we continue our tribute to the master of the macabre, Edgar Allan Poe, as I present to you an edited and formatted version of his 1849 revenge classic, The Hop Frog. So turn off the lights, gather round, and remember, these tales scared your grandpappy first, and enjoy the Reincarnated Radio Podcast. I never knew anyone so keenly alive to a joke as the king was. He seemed to live only for joking, to tell a good story of the joking kind, and to tell it well, that was the surest road to his favor. Thus it happened that his seven ministers were all noted for their accomplishments as jokers. They all took after the king as well in being large, corpulent, oily men. At the date of my narrative, Professing gestures had not altogether gone out of fashion at court. Several of the great continental powers still retained their fools, who wore motley with caps and bells, and who were expected to be always ready with sharp witticisms at a moment's notice in consideration of the crumbs that fell from the royal table. Our king, as a matter of course, retained his fool as well. The fact is, he required something in the way of folly if only to counterbalance the heavy wisdom of the seven wise men who were his ministers. His fool, however, was not only a fool. He was also a dwarf and a cripple, and this only tripled his value in the eyes of the king. Dwarves were as common at court in those days as fools, and this dwarf fool's name was Hopfrog. The king found value in his dwarf fool, for many monarchs would have found it difficult to get through without a gesture to laugh with and a dwarf to laugh at. This king had both, in one. I believe the name Hopfrog was not given to the dwarf by his sponsors at baptism, but by general consent of the several ministers, on account of his inability to walk as other men do, a movement that afforded illimitable amusement, and of course consolation, to the king. I am not able to say with precision what country Hopfrog originally came from, but Hopfrog, and a young girl very little less dwarfish than himself, although of exquisite proportions and a marvelous dancer, had been forcibly carried off from their respective homes in adjoining provinces, and sent as presents to the king by one of his ever-victorious generals. Her name was Tripetta. Under these circumstances, it is not to be wondered that a close intimacy arose between the two little captives. Indeed, they soon became sworn friends. Hopfrog, who although he made a great deal of sport, was by no means popular. But she, on account of her grace and exquisite beauty, although also a dwarf, was universally admired, so she possessed much influence and never failed to use it, whenever she could, for the benefit of Hopfrog. On some grand state occasion, I forget which, the king determined to have a masquerade, and whenever a masquerade or anything of that kind occurred at the court, then the talents both of Hopfrog and Tripetta were sure to be called into play. The night appointed for the masquerade had arrived. A gorgeous hall had been fitted up under Tripetta's eye with every kind of device which could possibly give brilliance to a masquerade. The whole court was in a fever of expectation. As for costumes and characters, it might be well supposed that everybody had come to a decision on such points. Many had made up their minds as to which roles they would assume, a week or even a month in advance. And, in fact, there was not a particle of indecision anywhere, except in the case of the king and his seven ministers. 
Why they hesitated, I never could tell, unless they did it by way of a joke. More probably, they found it difficult on account of being so fat to make up their minds. In all events, time flew, and as a last resort, they sent for Tripetta and Hopfrog. When the two little friends obeyed the summons of the king, they found him sitting at his wine with the seven members of his cabinet council. But the monarch appeared to be in a very ill humor. He knew that Hopfrog was not fond of wine, for it excited the poor cripple almost to madness, and madness is no comfortable feeling. But the king loved his practical jokes and took pleasure in forcing Hopfrog to drink, and as the king called it, to be merry. Come here, Hopfrog he said, as the jester and his friend entered the room. Swallow this bumper to the health of your absent friends, and then let us have the benefit of your invention. We want characters, man. Something novel. We are wearied at this everlasting sameness. Come, drink, and wine will brighten your wits. Hopfrog endeavored, as usual, to get up a jest and reply to these advances from the king, but the effort was too much. It happened to be the poor dwarf's birthday, and the command to drink to his absent friends forced the tears to his eyes. Many large, bitter drops fell into the goblet as he took it, humbly, from the hand of the tyrant. <laughs> Roared the latter, and the dwarf reluctantly drained the beaker. See what a glass of good wine can do? Why, your eyes are shining already. Poor fellow. His large eyes gleamed, rather than shone, for the effect of wine on his excitable brain was not more powerful than instantaneous. He placed the goblet nervously on the table, and looked round upon the company with a half-insane stare. They all seemed highly amused at the success of the king's joke. "'And now to business,' said the Prime Minister, who was also a very fat man. "'Yes,' said the king. "'Come, lend us your assistance.' Characters, my fine fellow, we stand in need of characters, all of us. The king bellowed out an intoxicated laugh, and as this was seriously meant for a joke, his laugh was chorused by the seven ministers. Hopfrog also laughed, although feebly and somewhat vacantly. Come, come, said the king impatiently. Have you nothing to suggest? I am endeavored to think of something novel replied the dwarf, abstractedly, for he was quite bewildered by the wine. Endeavoring? cried the tyrant fiercely. What do you mean by that? You are sulky and want more wine? Well, here, drink this. And he poured out another goblet full and offered it to the cripple, who merely gazed at it, gasping for breath. Drink, I say, shouted the monster. The dwarf hesitated. The king grew purple with rage. The courtiers smirked. Tripetta, pale as a corpse, advanced to the monarch's seat, and falling on her knees before him, implored him to spare her friend. The tyrant regarded her for some moments in evident wonder at her audacity. He seemed quite at a loss of what to say or do. At last, without uttering a syllable, he pushed her violently from him and threw the contents of the brimming goblet in her face. The poor girl got up as best as she could and, not daring even to sigh, resumed her position at the foot of the table. There was a dead silence for about half a minute, during which the falling of a feather might have been heard.
It was interrupted by a low but harsh and protracted grating sound which seemed to come at once from every corner of the room. What, what are you making that noise for? demanded the king, turning furiously to the dwarf. The latter seemed to have recovered, in great measure, from his intoxication and looking fixedly but quietly into the tyrant's face, merely ejaculated, How could it have been me? Yes, the sound appeared to come from without, observed one of the courtiers. I fancy it was the parrot at the window, wetting his bill upon his cage wires. True, true, replied the monarch, as if much relieved by the suggestion. But on the honor of a knight, I could have sworn it was the gritting of this vagabond's teeth. Whereupon the dwarf laughed and displayed a set of large, powerful, and yet very repulsive teeth. Moreover, he avowed his perfect willingness to swallow as much wine as the king desired. The monarch was pacified, and having drained another bumper with no very perceptible ill effect, Hopfrog entered spiritly into the plans for the masquerade. I cannot tell what was the association of the idea, observed he, very tranquilly, and as if he had never tasted wine in his life. But just after your majesty had struck the girl and thrown the wine in her face, and while the parrot was making that odd noise outside the window, there came into my mind a capital diversion. One of my own country frolics, often enacted among us at our masquerades, but here it will be new altogether. Unfortunately, however, it, it requires a company of eight persons, and— Here we are, cried the king, laughing at his acute discovery of the coincidence. Eight to a fraction, I and my seven ministers. Come, come, what is this diversion? We call it, replied the cripple, the eight-chained orangutans, and it really is excellent sport if well enacted. We will enact it remarked the king, drawing himself up and lowering his eyelids. The beauty of the game, continued Hopfrog, lies in the frighted occasions among the women. <laughs> Capital! <laughs> Roared in chorus the monarch and his ministry. I will equip you as orangutans. The resemblance shall be so striking that the company of masqueraders will take you for real beasts. And, of course, they will be as much terrified as astonished. Oh, this is exquisite, exclaimed the king. Hop frog, I will make a man of you. The chains are for the purpose of increasing the confusion by their jangling. You are supposed to have escaped en masse from your keepers. Oh, but your majesty cannot conceive the effect produced by eight chained orangutans imagined to be real ones. Rushing in with savage cries among the crowd of delicately and gorgeously habited men and women, why the contrast is inimitable. It must be, said the king, and the council arose hurriedly to put in execution the scheme of Hopfrog. His mode of equipping the king and his company as orangutans was very simple, but effective enough for his purposes. At the time of my story, the animals in question had very rarely been seen in any part of the civilized world. And as the imitations made by the dwarf were sufficiently beast-like and more than sufficiently hideous, their truthfulness to the nature was thus to be secured. The king and his ministers were first encased in tight-fitting shirts and drawers. They were then saturated with tar. At this stage of the process, some of the ministers suggested feathers, 
but the suggestion was at once overruled by the dwarf, who soon convinced the eight, by ocular demonstration, that the hair of such a brute as the orangutan was much more efficiently represented by flax. A thick coating of the latter was accordingly plastered upon the coating of tar. A long chain was now procured. First it was passed about the waist of the king, and tied, then about another of the party, and also tied, and then about all successively in the same manner. When this chaining arrangement was complete, and the party stood as far apart from each other as possible, they formed a circle, and to make all things appear natural, Hop Frog passed the residue of the chain in two diameters, at right angles, across the circle. The grand saloon in which the masquerade was to take place in was a circular room, very lofty, and receiving the light of the sun only by a single window at the top. At night, it was illuminated principally by a large chandelier hanging by a chain from the center of the skylight, and it was lowered and elevated by means of a counterbalance which was located outside of the cupola and over the roof. The arrangements of the room had been left to Tripetz's superintendence. But, in some particulars, it seems, she had been guided by the calmer judgment of her friend the dwarf. At his suggestion, the chandelier was removed. Its waxen drippings, which, in weather so warm, it was quite impossible to prevent, would have been seriously detrimental to the rich dresses of the guests, who, on account of the crowded state of the saloon, could not all be expected but to keep from under the chandelier. Additional sconces were set in various parts of the hall, and a flambeau emitting a sweet odor was placed in the right hand of each of the caryatids that stood against the wall, some fifty or sixty altogether. The eight orangutans, taking Hopfrog's advice, waited patiently until midnight, when the room was thoroughly filled with masqueraders before making their appearance. No sooner had the clock ceased striking, however, than they rushed or rather rolled in all together. The excitement among the masqueraders was prodigious and filled the heart of the king with glee. As had been anticipated, most of the guests supposed that the ferocious-looking creatures were in some kind of reality, if not precisely orangutans. Many of the women swooned with affright. As it was, a general rush was made to the doors, but the king had ordered them to be locked immediately upon his entrance, and, at the dwarf's suggestion, the keys had been deposited with him. While the tumult was at its height, and each masquerader attentive only to his own safety, the chain by which the chandelier ordinarily hung, and which had been drawn up on the removal of the chandelier, might have been seen very gradually to descend, until its hooked extremity came within three feet of the floor. Soon after this, the king and his seven friends, having reeled about the hall in all directions, found themselves, at length, in its center, and of course, in immediate contact with the chain. While they were thus situated, the dwarf, who had followed noiselessly at their heels, inciting them to keep up the commotion, took hold of their own chain, and here, with rapid thought, inserted the hook from which the chandelier hangs, and in an instant was drawn so far upward that the orangutans drew together in close connection, face to face. The masqueraders, by this time, had recovered in some measure from their alarm, and began to regard the whole matter as a well-contrived pleasantry, setting up a loud shout of laughter at the predicament of the apes. Leave them to me! Now screamed Hopfrog, his shrill voice making it easily heard through all of the din. Leave them to me! I fancy I know them! I can only get a good look at them! I can soon tell who they are! 
Here, scrambling over the heads of the crowd, he managed to get to the wall. Then, seizing a flambeau, he returned to the center of the room, leapt with the agility of a monkey upon the king's head, and climbed a few feet up the chain, holding down the torch to examine the group of orangutans. And now, while the whole assembly, apes included, were convulsing with laughter, the jester suddenly uttered a shrill whistle. The chain flew violently up thirty feet, dragging with it the dismayed and struggling orangutans and leaving them suspended in midair between the skylight and the floor. Hopfrog, clinging to the chain as it rose, still maintained his relative position and continued to thrust his torch down toward them as though endeavoring to discover who the apes truly were. So thoroughly astonished was the whole company at this ascent that a dead silence of about a minute's duration ensued. It was broken by such a low, harsh, grating sound as had before attracted the attention of the king and his counselors when the former threw the wine in the face of Tripetta. But on the present occasion, there could be no question as to whence the sound issued. It came from the fang-like teeth of the dwarf who ground them and gnashed them as he foamed at the mouth and glared with an expression of maniacal rage into the upturned countenances of the king and his seven companions. Aha! I begin to see who these people are now. Here, pretending to scrutinize the king more closely, he held the flambeau to the flaxen coat which enveloped him and which instantly burst into a sheet of vivid flame. In less than half a minute, the whole eight orangutans were blazing fiercely amid the shrieks of the multitudes who gazed at them from below, horror-stricken and without the power to render them the slightest assistance. The jester climbed higher up the chain and seized his opportunity to speak once more. I now see distinctly, he said, what manner of people these maskers are. They are a great king and his seven privy counselors, a king who does not scruple to strike a defenseless girl, and his seven counselors who abet him in the outrage. As for myself, I am Hopfrog, the jester, and this is my last jest. Owing to the high combustibility of both the flax and the tar, the dwarf had barely ended his brief speech before the work of vengeance was complete. The eight corpses swung in their chains, a fetid, blackened, hideous, and indistinguishable mass. The cripple hurled his torch at them, clambered leisurely to the ceiling, and disappeared through the skylight. It is supposed that Tripetta was stationed on the roof and had been the accomplice of her friend in this fiery revenge, and that, together, they effected their escape to their own country, for neither was ever seen again. And that concludes our reincarnation of The Hop Frog by Edgar Allan Poe and another episode of the Reincarnated Radio Podcast. New episodes of the Reincarnated Radio Podcast can be found every Thursday on Podbean and anywhere you get your podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram so you never miss an announcement and leave us a review while you're at it. Tell us what you think. Hopefully we raised a hair or two. But for now, that's it for me, Dave Stishin, and the rest of us at the Reincarnated Radio Podcast where we scared your grandpappy first. (laughs) 